Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Okay, now if you will turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 16. Hear these words. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you'll say, do here also in your hometown the things that we heard that you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, a prophet is accepted is not, no prophet is accepted in a prophet's hometown. But the truth is that there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and, and there was a severe famine over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him from the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The reading of the sacred Disturbing, confusing, convicting word of the living God. Today we move into the last sermon in this series called Available in these many weeks, these seven weeks we've been attempting to marvel at the mystery of a God who would choose to make God's own self available to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And what we've decided along the way or discovered or, or marveled about along the way is that this God who has become available to us 
within this divine availability that God has given to us, God has a desire for us to become available back to God. And then in this mutual availability between God's availability to us and our availability back to God, God is inviting us always, inviting us, including us, calling us to join with God in the ongoing work, the holy work of rebuilding and redeeming and restoring and repairing the world. Now, All along this way, I've said many things about what it looks like to be available, about how to posture your life, about how you're available at every stage and age of your life, how it it nuances your calling, but the calling never changes. And I've said a hundred things about what it means to be available, but there is one thing left, one. You and I cannot be available without this one ingredient, courage. Courage. After all, don't forget, this is the one who said, if any wish to follow after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You can't do that without courage. To take up your cross and deny your own sense of ego, your own sense of agenda, your own plans, your own comforts, to deny those things and take up a cross that is heavy will require you to love somebody who doesn't love you back. Forgive somebody who has wronged you, cancel the debt of somebody who owes you everything. That takes courage. He's also the one earlier in Matthew's gospel, around about the chapter 10 uh, part of that gospel, he's the one who says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Because if you actually really take on this lifestyle that I'm calling you to live in my name, this world will eat you alive. That takes courage. In the 20th century, one of the greatest theological minds of the century was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and he also was one of the greatest writers and theological minds of the, of the century, and, and yet he was also a pacifist who, having read the Sermon on the Mount, interpreted the Sermon on the Mount as a call from Jesus to a life of nonviolence, and yet... He found himself involved in a plot to murder Hitler because as he came to his decision in the spiritual journey he was making, he reckoned that saving the Jews from extermination was worthy of him reconsidering everything he had ever assumed about the way things are. The Nazis arrested him and hanged him And that 20th century martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his classic books before he had died, maybe even prophetically had these words to say about the life that we're called to live. When Christ calls a man, he calls him, bids him to come and die. To die to ego. To die to self, to die to your own agenda, to die to a life of comfort that would insulate and cocoon you off from the true call of discipleship. See, that takes courage. Do you know at the heart of the word courage is a Latin root word, core. You know what that word means? Heart. 
At the heart of the word courage is the very word heart. To become available to God requires the heart. It requires your heart beating in rhythm with the things that stir the heart of God. And if you didn't listen to the Latins, listen to the Hebrews. Because the Hebrews didn't believe that the center of your emotion was your heart like you and I do. We, that's kind of romantic. It's our heart that is the center of everything we feel. You know what the Hebrews believed? The center of emotion were your bowels. Not quite as romantic, granted. But your entrails, your intestines, right? Or we might say your gut. To become available to God is not for those who are faint of heart and not with those, not for those who have no guts. It takes courage to become available to God. And it occurs to me as I was preparing for this sermon that we have said so many things about availability over the last seven weeks and, and yet everything that I have said to you has been about you individually as an individual follower of Jesus. But do you know that everything that can be said about an individual, about a person becoming available to God can be said about a people becoming available to God. And, and, and every hindrance that can keep a person from becoming available, comfort, contentment, a, a sense of complacency, an aversion to risk, all those things that can keep a person from being available to God can keep a people from being available to God. And I wanna talk for just a moment about the topic this morning, why it takes guts for the church to stay available. Why it takes guts, heart, intestinal fortitude for the church to stay available. And I can't think of a better text than the one we have here. Because every church I know will at some point in their history be confronted or presented with a call from Christ to follow Christ in a realm where they have never been before. And in the risky realm of the call of God, it will require guts to follow. And in this story that we just read, Jesus comes back to his home synagogue and for our purposes this morning, we might refer to it as his home church. He comes to his home church and he's already been in the wilderness. He's gone through all the wilderness temptations. He knows who he is now and he knows why he's here. And he has the honor that morning of reading the scripture and bringing the message. Oh, he's come home, this one who was raised in our nursery. We, we taught him how to read Hebrew when he was just about yay tall. Well, I changed his diaper in the nursery. Look, he's back home after all this time. He's so smart, we're so proud of him, and he's gonna give the sermon for the day. The attendant comes to him and gives him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, the scrolls of the Hebrew Bible vary in, in length and size and weight, Isaiah is a big scroll. If unrolled to its furthest extent, its length is 24 feet long. And I say that only to say this. When they hand him Isaiah and he puts it upon the rack and begins to turn the mechanism in a, in a way that allows him to find the passage he wants to speak, he has some time to think about it. And as he's thinking about it, he's looking in the faces of people he knows and loves. 
and he's looking and thinking to himself as he unfurls the scroll, I wonder what I might say today that would somehow convince them that I am here for a big purpose. And of all the places where he could have unrolled the scroll, he stops at Isaiah 61, verses one and two. Now, that's the scripture that Luke Translation paraphrases the way we read it a moment ago. If we were to hear it actually from the prophet Isaiah, here is how it sounds. Isaiah 61, verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor, And he stops and the text tells us he puts down the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down and says to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing now. There's something interesting happening in this text. It's a very popular text. In fact, it has been said that Isaiah 61 verses one and two is so popular that it was the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. You know John 3, everybody knows John 3. I mean, back in the day, in the end zone of football stadiums, you would see the guy with the card that would say John 3, 16, right? So that you would turn and see what it's all about. Pete Inns of the podcast Bible for Normal People says, if they played football during the time of Isaiah, the guy in the end zone would be holding up Isaiah 61, verses one and two, because it was everything. It was everything. It described in those two verses every hope that all of Israel had ever had that one day it's gonna be right. That one day all those who are down will be lifted up. That one day those who are incarcerated in captivity will be set free. Those who are blind will see and so on. It, it, it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's found in all kinds of rabbinic literature. It was so popular that those who heard him read it were not surprised that he would choose that particular scripture. It's like picking John 3.16. But something interesting happens there. Of all the places where Jesus could have turned on his inaugural sermon, he chooses this one as if to stand in front of his home congregation and say, you've seen me, you knew me, you saw me growing up, but if I can summarize why I'm here, it all boils down to this, I am here to accomplish that. Setting the world free, liberating the captive. In fact, it's a reference to what we call the day of Jubilee, which you read about in your favorite book and mine, the book of Leviticus chapter 25, where every 49 years, every seven cycles of seven years, on the 50th year, they were to set the captives free. The prisoners come out of their chains. The debts are forgiven. If you lost any land in a, in a land or in a business venture that failed, you get it back. We don't have any evidence that they ever actually incorporated this plan, but it was part of the plan and it was weaved into the very fabric of the hope of the people that God had constructed a way for those who were down to not always be out, to be lifted up, to be brought back in and repaired. And in the midst of that, 
Jesus said, the day of Jubilee has come. I have come to fulfill all of this. And I just want to stop for there for just a moment right there because in all this talk that we've been sharing about availability, do you know that if you ever in any expression at all attempt to become available to Christ, you need to know that what you're becoming available to is his stated mission in the world. And sometimes that's difficult to remember because sometimes we can allow our methodology to become our mission. And we become so proud of our methodologies that get us toward a mission that we think that our methodologies make up the mission. And so we're proud of our leaders and we're proud of our programs and we're proud of the the activities that we can perform. And when we're a highly successful, truly capable kind of congregation like we are, we can become proud of the very things that we think are the mission when they are only the methodologies. The mission is to yield our life to the mission of Jesus, which is to set the world free. Now, a few years ago, I preached this sermon to you. I mean, I preached this passage to you, this very passage from Luke 4. I said some different things that day. In fact, on the way into worship that day, I gave you something. Everybody who came into worship that day received a key. Because I said on that day early in my ministry here, the mission of Jesus is to set the world free. But I gave you these keys, and if you can zoom in and look closely, they have no grooves on them. And I said, this is your key because it symbolizes your life because what God wants to do with you is to groove your life in such a way that you can uniquely unclasp the lock on somebody's life. Because if we are in service to the greater mission of God to set the world free, then our lives become grooved by God, not grooved by us. And that's pretty groovy. I remember this day because some of you kept dropping your keys on the floor. Remember this? All through the service. If you still have this, you may have it and not know what it is. In your junk drawer, you're like, where's that key go to? Well, I'm reminding you what it is. I'm reminding you that you and I are called to yoke our lives, not to our mission, but to the mission of Jesus. Well, so he says all this. He gets up in front of them and says, this is my mission, I'm here to do the thing that we've all been hoping for generations, I'm here, the day has come. And then something interesting happens. Verse 22 says, they all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? And typically, I gotta admit to you, for years and years when I read that verse, I interpreted it as kind of a cute, kind of nice, warm and fuzzy kind of moment. Jesus unscrolls the thing, declares the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament, says, that's why I'm here, that's my mission, and they say, oh, so good. All spoke well of it. Isn't that Joseph's son? Yeah, my, he's grown. You know, so Hercules, Hercules, so proud, right? So proud of him. I remember when he was just, you know, <laughs> But I don't know that that's really what's going on. It may be a cute moment. It may have been a fond moment that they shared with somebody of whom they are proud. Isn't that Joseph's son? Joseph would be so proud. But I don't think that's the spirit. You know why? Because in a few verses, they try to throw him off a cliff. Something goes south. There is a, a turn in the text. The tone of the text turns on a dime. I wonder why. Well, 
If you look closely at what we just read, he chose the the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and we read that part, and that's all fine and good, but here's the thing, he didn't read the whole thing. That day in Nazareth, he didn't read the whole thing. And of course he wouldn't, it's a long chapter, he wouldn't read the whole thing, you choose. But where he chose to stop reading had an impact in that room. Can I do something with you? Can I just read what I just read, the first two verses of Isaiah 61, but continue reading where he curiously stopped reading? Isaiah 61, verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim to the captives liberty and release to the prisoners, so far so good, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Hmm. Uh, To comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, to oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit, and yet the congregation was hushed. Not because of what he read, but because of what he didn't read what he deliberately chose to exclude in his opportunity to give his mission statement to the world. He excluded the vengeance of our Lord part. Why? I mean, there are different theories as to why this may be the case. On the one hand, some have said, well, because he'll deal with the vengeance stuff later, he's just kind of dealing with this part right now, and that's fine, it may be a possibility. Although it's just that Jesus doesn't do it that way anywhere else in the Gospels. He doesn't treat Old Testament scripture in that way where he chops it up in certain ways in any other place. And others have said, and I find it compelling, is this yet another place where Jesus has a you have heard it said but I say to you kind of moment? Jesus is messing with their theology. He's messing with the the theology of retribution. Isn't it interesting about people like us, religious people, how sometimes in hidden ways, we almost kind of in a subconscious way require that if I'm gonna win, somebody's gotta lose. I mean, or if I'm gonna be set free, somebody has got to suffer for having kept me in captivity, right? And it filled the congregation with a little more anxiety at his choice of not highlighting the vengeance of God. Now listen, a preacher knows when he's disturbed the congregation. Trust me. I saw this one cartoon, I couldn't, I couldn't locate it or else I would show it to you. I saw it years ago. It's of a minister at the pulpit and, and the shot is from behind and he's preaching and, and there's the crowd, the congregation, and they're all sitting with scowls on their faces and their arms are crossed and they're angry <laughs> and the, the caption underneath the minister is the minister speaking and all it says is, of course I could be wrong. A minister knows when he has hit a tripwire in the congregation and Jesus 
stops short. And then there's something else happening in verse 22. The, the verse 22 is that one that a moment ago we said, oh, oh, isn't that Joseph's son? Oh, they all spoke so well of him. Hercules, are so proud of him. Yet something interesting is happening in verse 22. There is a textual discrepancy in the interpretation of that verse. The Greek is very simple, it's very clean, it's very straightforward. The Greek simply means all bore witness to him. In fact, the King James Version actually interprets it that way. I mean, he comes, he reads the thing, he leaves out the saying about vengeance of God, and and the, the crowd all bore witness to him. Neither positive nor negative, right? In that place, there's what we call a syntactical decision that must be made, a decision about the syntax, the construction of that sentence. The interpreter has to decide with this little dative pronoun, the phrase of him, is is it that they are bearing witness positively or bearing witness negatively? In other words, one translation, which many of the translators went with, was all spoke well of him, but another viable translation is all spoke ill of him. That it is entirely possible that when he unrolls the scroll and they're like, oh, this is gonna be good, watch this, I remember him when he was, and he, and he chooses to mute Any theology that insinuates the vengeance of God and the retribution of God, it's not that they said, oh, they're so good, but rather they began to rumble and speak ill of them. You gotta be careful when you mess with somebody's theology. And it changes how we interpret the rest of that verse instead of, oh, isn't that Joseph's son? Instead, the tone then becomes, who does he think he is? Isn't that Joseph's son? (laughs) Who does he think he is to come and mess with our Bible that way? To poke and provoke and stoke our theology in such a way that makes us a little uncomfortable. Who does he think he is? And, and, And then it raises the question once more, why is it that we would be so uncomfortable with the Son of God choosing to elevate the liberation and freedom and salvation of God and mute all former understandings of the vengeance of God. What is it in us that makes us need somebody else to suffer in order for me to be set free? I love what Anne Lamott says about this. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you'd hate, right? Isn't that right? Come on. And yet, what if on the day Jesus could have chosen any one of the 24 feet of Isaiah's scroll, he chooses the one that elevates the good news that all can be set free. On that day, he does something so radical that it sounds heretical in the ears of those in the room. He suggests to them that the salvation of God is not just for the elect or for the few, but for all the world. And then you know what he does? He doubles down. He then, to make his point even clearer, to add insult to serious injury, he uses two sermon illustrations where he points out to two places in their history where God deliberately chose to go around the chosen people and use someone that the insiders thought were outsiders. 
He says, in the time of Elijah, there there were all kinds of widows in Israel, but God didn't go to any of them. God went to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon to help out Elijah. Why? Because she was available. She was the wrong religion, the wrong ethnicity, the wrong language spoken. She was the wrong everything, and yet she was available. Talk about guts. And then Jesus continues on. It doesn't get any better in the room. The temperature's going up in his room there. And he says, oh, and by the way, Elisha, at the time of Elisha, well, there are all kinds of people with skin diseases, with leprosy in Israel, but God healed none of them except Naaman the Syrian, the commander of the armies of Syria who were the enemies of Israel. Jesus preaches a sermon that is completely unambiguous. It is clear as day. His point is that God will use those who make themselves available to God and it will disturb those who have thought they were in the inside from the very beginning. What Jesus attempts to teach in this sermon is that the love of God is so relentless and so reckless and so radical that God's love is so strong for the lost that his tactics will sometimes sound like heresy to those who think they are the most found. Yes, yes. So, a band of them got up, got a committee together, took them to the edge of the hill to try to throw him over the cliff We sometimes look over this part of the story. We think of the crucifixion as the way Jesus lost his life, but he barely made it out of this one. They take him to the cliff to throw him over the edge, and I find it provocative. He slips through the midst of them and goes on his way. That's what verse 30 says. He passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Is this what churches do with Jesus all the time? I mean, don't we have a tendency to do this with Jesus all the time? We grab him and try to lay a hold on him and control Jesus enough so that we can shoehorn him into our agenda instead of humbly recognizing that there may have been some things that we thought of God that needed some correcting And maybe instead of trying to grab onto Jesus and control him to fit into our agenda, maybe we yield ourselves with the guts to say, we're with you. And if you're gonna slip from the midst of this mob, we wanna slip with you and go on your way too. Yeah, yeah. Beloved, this is why I talk about guts. Because for the church to remain available, it takes guts. You know why? Because God will constantly poke and prod and press us to edges of our comfort and will cause us to question and even challenge all of our presuppositions about God so that everything that has been a construction of our own making may be dismantled and what is left is the true risen Christ of God. May this church remain a courageous church in the Lord. One of our core values in this church is we believe in a congregational courage. And that means wherever Christ leads us, we go. Whatever Christ would do, we do. Whatever Christ would say, we say. Whomever Christ would serve at Christ's table, 
we serve. Why? Because it's his agenda and not our own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe you're hearing that today and you wanna be a part of a church like that. Well, you know what, my friend? (laughs) Me too, me too. And as long as God gives me the the blessing of serving alongside you as your shepherd, as your pastor, as your leader here, I want you to know that is my prayer for this church, that we remain a church with guts. To do and go and be everything Christ would have us to go and do and be. And if you wanna be a part of that kind of church, we want you with us. And maybe you're hearing these words today and and you have never come to a place where in your own personal journey you have allowed yourself to become available to to Christ. Well, a a church is only made up of a a bunch of guts and a bunch of heart when its individual members have guts and heart. 